Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I can take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving value's contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Can I ask just a very simple question? Um, you know, back in the day, it was maybe people your age are a little bit older. The boomers, are, are you a baby boomer? I am not a boomer. Okay, you're Gen X. All yes. Right, apologize. How dare you, man? We went <laughs> exactly. from 44 to 65. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm he looks great. That, again, I'll revisit this head of hair you and your brother have. It's, I don't know. Not only are you the client, you're the player president of the, the hair club. But anyway, the boomers were kind of responsible for Woodstock changing the system, and then you can go back a generation before that, whether it was the silent generation, traditionalists. These days, here's my question. When you, you know, the face of wokeness and the face of, you know, all this super progressiveness, at the end of the day, our college campus liberals, 20-something-year-olds, Gen Z. Is this sort of, sort of just every generation, the young people are going to have their causes they identify with, and it is what it is, and they're the future. Sorry, 68-year-olds, 72-year-olds, 80-year-olds. It's not your time has come and gone and move on. It's now Gen Z time, the woke time. How much of that is just on them and this is their philosophy and they're the future and it's like it is what it is, buddy. How much of that is on them? Uh, I wish. Unfortunately, it's on us. And you know, this actually is a perfect way to get back to your question about uh, education. The problem, or at least I would argue one of the most major problems is that we have broken the mechanism by which young people come to understand how the world functions. Now, that has happened in a number of different ways, but it has accelerated very rapidly in the last decade or two. Um, because of the iPhone, I'm assuming, and the internet? It could have been a lot of things. It happened to be those two and a few more. Okay. Um, you know, porn, lots of stuff. But the the problem, if you think back into what human beings fundamentally are, human beings are a creature in which you have the hardware package, the body, mm -hmm. and you have a software package that is loaded in after the child is born primarily. That software package is capable of turning you into anything. You can be uh, an Inuit hunting large sea mammals by kayak, right? Or you can be a Maasai herdsman, or you can uh, be a collector of swallow nests in a cave in China, right? A human being can be a lot of different things based on what software package it gets, mm -hmm. right? It can be an Aztec. Um, but what it cannot do is live in a world where by the time an individual becomes an adult, the software program that it picked up in childhood is already obsolete. There is no mechanism to deal with that world where it is changing so rapidly that the world you're born into is gone before you become an adult. And that's the world that we're living in. In our case, it happens to surround technologies like iPhones, like the internet, like pornography. These things are radically altering the realities. And this then brings us back to the question of what, would we, what should we do to fix education? And the, the answer, at least a big part of it, 
is actually staring us in the face. What is so distorting about the technologies that come to us through screens is that they are not obligated to adhere to rules, right? On the internet, if you say that you're a woman, then I guess you are, right? Because who's going to say differently, right? In reality, if you're a man and you say that you're a woman, there's something to talk about, right? That doesn't appear, that doesn't match the person I see standing in front of me. So the way to take a generation and educate it so that it does not grow up to be um, a, a, a world full of suckers is to force education to include things that are obligated to rules, especially physical rules. So when, when Heather and I were teaching, among the things that we did was we would assign students to teach themselves any skill, right? We had a, an assignment we, we called Learn a Skill. And the idea was it didn't matter what skill it was, but it had one requirement. The skill had to be one where you didn't need some person to tell you whether you had succeeded or failed. It had to be obvious. If you were going to build tables, they had to stand up. They had to be level, right? You don't need someone to tell you you did or you didn't build a table, right? You didn't or you didn't uh, fix an engine. You did or you didn't play a song that sounded musical, right? Those are all physical realities. And the reason that that is so important is that in a world where everything that you learn is learned socially, right, you can be persuaded of things that are absolutely false, right? If the professor at the front of the room is a fool, but they're in charge of your grade, and they say lots of foolish things, and you dutifully write them down in your notebook, and then you spit them back out on the test, you are being anti-educated, right? That's never going to happen in the context of an engine or a garden or anything where it's physics that dictates whether or not you succeeded, or it's biology that dictates whether or not you've succeeded. So my point would be somebody who gets really good at operating in the physical world is not going to be a fool. Right? They may you know, lack some skills, they may not be able to do calculus, they may not be articulate, but they won't be a fool. And so we have to include these um, mechanisms that are not socially conveyed in our education at a high level. And frankly, most people can go through school and never encounter these things. They're no longer a part of the regular curriculum. Would you do us a favor and go maybe a slightly deeper and take a sort of an abstract idea and be very specific? Like, what are you doing with your 16 and 18-year-old kids to educate them so they don't become fools and victims of modern society? Uh, you know, we do all kinds of things. We uh, troubleshoot our vehicles when they fail. We um, build additions onto our house. We fix the plumbing when it's not working. And, you know, these things, they're not only incredibly useful, but they're also rewarding, right? There's nothing quite like taking something that isn't working for reasons that are mysterious, going through the process, which, by the way, ends up being a scientific process where you determine what it is that must be going wrong with it, and then you discover, hey, I must have had that right because there it is working now, right? That's a very rewarding process. It's very interesting because you, I would say, you know, obviously you're, you get paid to use your brain and your mouth, but you're making your kids use their hands to accomplish things. That, that must be very intentional. 
Well, it is and it isn't. You know, I, I sort of grew up as a tinkerer. I was always, you know, when people would come to do work on the house I grew up in, I would follow them around like a puppy dog, watching everything they did, understanding how the house worked and and all of those things. And so, you know, it's it's not like I have to go out of my way mm. to teach this lesson. It's, it's intuitive, um, but it also, it works like gangbusters. Some may say you're just getting free labor out of your kids. I don't know. That is definitely <laughs> also the case. Let's talk about, let's transition to a couple of different topics. This has been great. Uh, we got 45 minutes left and we got a few topics to go through. So Chad GBT is passing the tests required for medical licenses and business degrees. I don't know if you saw this or not. Pull up wow. a little bit so we can kind of cover this. So the viral chatbot that has raised concerns from teachers and academics over its ability to cheat on essays and exam has now passed a Wharton MBA final exam, the United States medical licensing exam, and components of the bar exam. And this thing's only been around since November, by the way. The, a Wharton professor conducted a study in which he used uh, OpenAI GP3, GPT-3, uh, the language model on which it is built on, to take a final exam of a core MBA course. He concluded that GPT-3 would have received a B to B minus on the exam. The professor Christian Terowish founded that GPT-3 performed the best at basic operations management and processing analysis questions. For these, the chatbot provided both correct answers and excellent explanation as to why an answer was selected. In the paper summary, teacher acknowledged that uh, GPT-3 is by no means perfect. At times, he, the bot made mistakes and simple mathematical calculations and wasn't able to handle more advanced process analysis questions. The study further fueled the conversation that academics are now having as a result of GPT-3, GPT, advanced writing skills regarding exam policies, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, some professors are extremely concerned. Some are worried. Some uh, are saying this could question the existing business model, teaching model, universities. How concerned are you? How excited are you? How little do you care about this? Um, I don't think anybody is worried enough. I think the hazard of what we're facing really? is almost beyond <laughs> what we can imagine. And that yeah. is I'm saying that even though I know I know what you have to focus on if yeah. you want to comfort yourself that this isn't so terrible. Um, you know, you can focus on the fact that this model has no capacity to be conscious. Right? It's it's simulating meaning without knowing what it's saying. But I don't know how long that lasts. I do know that this is a pretty good spot check of where we are in the uh, trajectory that results in uh, general artificial intelligence. And I don't think we are remotely ready for what's coming. Uh, and I will, I will point to the, you know, the, the most obvious of these problems is already already critical and you're you're hinting at it in what you're reading here but the fact that it is going to become extremely difficult to assess actual competence is it should alarm us at the highest level right to have a the possibility you could have a conference of people all consulting whatever descendant of uh, ChatGPT happens to be available at the time and talking to each other as if they know what they're talking about. You know, we've already got a problem with our experts who don't 
mostly seem to know what they're talking about. This is going to be, you know, a hundred times as bad in a world where they can be consulting something that sounds very knowledgeable and may in fact be completely on the wrong track, which I would point out is another argument and maybe even a much stronger argument for including real-world physical interactions in which you do not have to assess whether or not somebody knows what they're doing. They either fixed your engine or they didn't, right? It either runs or it, or it doesn't. Those kinds of things are not going to be easily faked, though even they, right? A mechanic who does not know what he's doing but is able to consult this uh, device in order to figure out what is likely causing a problem is going to become less and less capable. So I don't know what we're supposed to do about it, but I do know we're not ready. We're not ready, and the rate at which this is going to get better is clear, right? Exposing it to larger and larger data sets is going to make it better and better at, at simulating this kind of interaction. And uh, that's, you know, that's if it stays unconscious, the question of what happens if this doesn't stay unconscious or this stays unconscious but its descendant picks up consciousness is even more troubling. And I, I – But, but, but go, okay, go to ugly place. Good, bad, ugly. Worst case, what happens? It, well, is, is it the fear that uh, – um, I actually want you to go there before I tell you what I think <laughs> is the fear for some people. Okay. First of all, we don't need – chat GPT to take us to the worst case scenario. We are already losing our capacity to understand the world we live in, to manage the tools that we are creating, to live in harmony with each other. We are losing those things in the present prior to chat GPT. All of those problems get worse. This is like an accelerant, right? This is like you had a house fire and then you just threw gasoline on it. Right now we have a raging house fire. So I don't know that this is or isn't the thing, but I do know it's not going to help. At this moment, we can't deal with this. And this is not the last time that's going to happen, by the way. Right. We had a world. We had an Internet and then we dumped smartphones into it. And it was like an accelerant. It took the, um, the derangement that was arising out of natural algorithmic processes within the Internet. And they got vastly worse when people were constantly confronted with their phone and the ability to interact in this way all the time. So we've seen that. We're going to see it again with fusion power. Fusion power, which I believe is the one technology that potentially bootstraps us out of the system we're in and into one that is sustainable. But if you just added it to the system tomorrow, if you read the paper tomorrow and turned out we'd... If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Accomplished, scalable fusion, it would likely make things worse and not better because we're not ready for the world that it creates. So I don't know what the name of that problem is. But the we're not ready for that problem is a very serious one. And we can swap in one technology after another. um, And, you know, it it will create different disasters. What's the most dangerous invention we ever had? What's the most dangerous invention ever? The most dangerous invention we ever had. Or innovation. Invention, innovation. What's the most dangerous invention where we invented it? We're like, oh, shit, this is not good. You know, it's an almost impossible question to answer because, you know, if I, if, I do the, if I do the job right, it'll probably be something like paper or the mirror, right? Those things kick loose processes that may drive our extinction in the end, right? They won't, you know, there's not going to be a mirror the day the president hits the nuclear button and it all goes up in smoke, Right. But the point is, it may be the kind of self-awareness that comes when you see a photorealistic impression of yourself, you know, two feet away. Right. It may be that the thought processes that follow from that are the reason that we will ultimately destroy ourselves. Um, More approximately, of course, we do have to talk about things like uh, nuclear weapons. Um, Boy, do I think we just got a wake up call on the um, the biology front with covid I mean, yeah, this was a lot, a lot better than it might have been, but this was the first round, and um, we did not, we did not do very well with this test. Let's put it that way. Okay, so we're going to get to that here in a minute. Let's stay on this topic of the most dangerous invention. You said it could be the mirror or paper, but probably nuclear is where we're going to go, or you know, other things. Right. Yeah, when I say paper, I'm really hinting at written. Language, of course, which I is totally of course agree. also you know yeah. incredibly marvelous. I'm sure. not arguing it's not fantastic. So, so if if uh, guns, when guns were first invented, they called them the great equalizer. Who were they good for? Who were they bad for? Well, this is one of the these places where I have uh, changed my perspective. Um, I long believed the Second Amendment was the greatest error in our Constitution. I no longer believe that, and that doesn't mean that I look past all of the terrible, unnecessary carnage that arises because guns are easily available. But I'm watching tyranny erupt in places that I never would have expected it, and I am wondering if 
the founders did not very wisely understand that this day would come and that it will be very hard for tyrants to um, succeed in America if the populace is armed. So again, I don't, I don't, I know people will uh, hear something in that that I'm not saying. The cost of having these weapons commonly available is huge and frankly completely unacceptable to me. Really? So the cost. So, so you you're, you went from pro Second Amendment to now saying it would be better if we didn't have guns. No, no. The other way. Yeah. Okay, got the it. Other so way. now the benefit of having it is good versus not having it. Even though I appreciate the tremendous unnecessary cost of these weapons being common, right? E- even though I see that yeah. cost, but I believe do. nothing is, will be more destructive than if tyranny, uh, I mean, we've already seen lots of hints of tyranny in, in recent times in the U.S., but if tyranny takes over our, our nation and the West, yeah. We are in even more serious trouble. So I believe the harms that do come from these weapons being common will be dwarfed by the harms of uh, things like what we, you know, what we saw in the 20th century so, in the Soviet Union, for example. So, so let's go or back right to the now question. in Iran. So, yeah. So let's right? go back to the question. So, uh, who the invention of gun, the great equalizer? Who did it hurt? Who did it benefit? Um, I think I don't want to pretend to be an expert on that question. It would take me a lot of thought to to get to an answer. I I, I believe this is this is what happens when you ask a former professor yeah. of evolutionary biology. Very you rarely, get an answer. very rarely do I have an answer more than a evolutionary biology scientist. Okay, Let's but who did it hurt and who did it benefit? I think who it hurt the most were bullies, right? People that could just strong arm you physically or in any capacity. And who did it help? It helped weaker people. Sometimes you might say the weaker sex. It yeah. helped women. Um, I think at the end of the day, if if there's two very strong people, a man and a woman, or a, a weaker man and a very strong man, yeah. and all of a sudden the weaker person has a gun, essentially that's the great equalizer. So I think it hurt bullies the most. And if you extrapolate that to governments and you take a look at you know bully governments whether it's Iran today with the mullahs whether it's in uh, Venezuela where you don't can't have a gun or any place where the you know society or the uh, civilization or the people don't have a weapon to defend themselves you're going to be at the whim of tyrannical governments and bullies so to answer your question i think it helped weaker people Defend themselves. All right, but I want to. I want to push back slightly. No, but, no, I'm way smarter than you, and I. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell um, me why I'm wrong. Here's. I. I believe your argument is correct as far as it goes, yes. and the question is: Is it correct in the end? Mm-hmm. Right. You can take that same argument and you could apply it to nuclear weapons, and you could say, actually, what we want to do is have every country be armed with nuclear weapons, because then big countries won't bully small countries. If you did that the nuclear war that we will ultimately face will be that much sooner, right? Because you have that many itchy trigger fingers that could initiate the thing. And so I'm not convinced that even, I mean, look, we we saw that nuclear weapons did um, produce peace. It worked. But in the end, is that their net effect? We can't measure that because we're not at the end. So I don't know what the net effect of guns is. I do believe the effect you're describing is real and important. The, the only caveat that I would say, I can't believe I'm pushing back on you right now, is that the, the, the capacity for these nuclear weapons 
in the wrong hands could literally end Earth as we know it. Mm-hmm. Whereas a gun or an M16, yes, there could be some carnage, but you're not r- literally blowing up the world. So nuclear weapons, to a certain extent, is you know that threshold where it's like, don't cross that line. Brett, you can't let a playboy argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's his resume. He, it's, it's just it's not. You, you, you're a former professor of evolutionary biology. He's a He's a form of an evolutionary biology. There is biology there, but <laughs> it's different kind of life School in the Miami science. nightlife yeah. scene. It's a different <laughs> but, but let, education. Let's go through that. Let's go through that. So, okay, so guns, specific guns, not nuclear. Guns benefited, you know, the average person's like, listen, that guy's been bullying the city. This time he comes around, hey, you can't do this anymore. You got to get out of my house. Okay, shit, I'm not messing with that family. I'm out because I got a gun. Fantastic, right? It's like when you got the sign in the backyard, beware. There's a pit bull, a German shepherd, and beware, and there is no dog. But that sign itself gets some people to say, I don't want to mess with that place. And there's a study showing that there's a percentage of people that don't mess with a house that just has that sign. Whether there is a real dog or not, it still helps you to create some safety. Nuclear, fine. Internet, you know, a lot of people were worried about internet at the beginning. You have radio, you have TV, you have all this stuff, right? Who Who did YouTube scare? Who did uh, no. Anchor or you know Spotify uh, uh, benefit and hurt? If you if we think about who YouTube and Spotify and these places hurt, it hurt mainstream media. It scared the crap out of the bullies that have been telling everybody one side of the story. Now you got to sit there and listen to the number one podcast in the world, Joe Rogan, telling you a different way because he's got a guest that got you thinking. Now we're going out there doing research, going to Google, which at one point we were concerned. So does ChatGPT, ChatGPT, scare intellectuals? Is it where intellectuals are sitting there saying and professors are sitting there saying, uh-oh, if, if this happens, like in the insurance industry, I'm in the life insurance space, it, the moment they started doing predictive analytics without needing underwriters and saying, Brett, you don't need to do blood and urine anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't need underwriters anymore. Here's a test we're going to be taking on you. We're going to get your social media score. We're going to get this. We're going to get this. We're going to get this. Based on that, your preferred uh, elite underwriting, you're healthy. You're going to live till 85. Mom lived to 89. Dad lived to this. You're going to be fine, right? We don't need underwriters. Underwriters sat down. They're like, dude, don't. No, you can't stop this. I, I make quarter million a year. There's no way I want you to get rid of my job. This is scary, right? But guess what? That's innovation getting rid of underwriters. Could this model get rid of some educational system that will replace professors and they're sitting there worried saying, hey, I've been bragging about how smart I am. Now I can't do that anymore. This is not cool. Yes. And, you know, there's, we have just watched the entire expert class um, fail a real world test, right? We've watched all the universities Every science department, they have all just failed a major test. So, and you know, if you were inside that system and you kept your wits about you, you knew that there was a problem with competence. You knew that a lot of that was fakery and nonsense, right? It sounds, it looks like science, but it doesn't function like science. If you actually understand the magic that makes science work, you knew it wasn't taking place in these departments, that it wasn't taking place in the major journals. And so on the one hand, it is possible that something like ChatGPT helps us discover the level of incompetence that is putting us in jeopardy, which would be great. But my concern is that it actually arms the next wave of incompetence so that it sounds competent. 
and so it's harder to detect. And um, my guess is that latter problem uh, outweighs the benefit of the former. Well, I mean, we <laughs> you took me to a whole different place. We've already been having that. I mean, we have a president that is uh, uh, giving speeches of people that gave the speech 10 or 20 years prior to him and sounding very presidential and getting caught plagiarizing John F. Kennedy's speech or Ted Kennedy's speech or all these other people's speech. So plagiarism's not going away. Mm. People sound very, very intellectual. I think what, what is going to be interesting is we can right now produce a robot, if we don't already have it, that would be the UFC champion for every weight, okay? We can probably produce a robot. I don't know if you've seen that one robot that shoots three-pointers and how accurate it is. Have you seen that one or no? Steph Curry of robots? It, the, yeah. No, no. It's not even Steph Curry. It's better than Steph is 43%, 42%. This guy is like just hitting him left and right, okay? Perfect accuracy, and he's shooting the ball. So La Robot James? Le robot Jordan. Okay? It's, but, uh, uh, so, you know, we're already going in that direction. But do you really want to see robots playing? No. You know, if we can create a robot to go into UFC and fight them, am I really intimidated by that? Probably not. Now, the future of robots that are military, that's a different story. That's concerning. But, you know, intellectuals debating. Like, if you were to have a debate with Chad GBT, you're probably going to lose the debate, not in the sense of who's right or who's wrong. Who can recite more information and remember and memorize? Well, the, the ability to memorize as an individual, it, it was very a valuable skill set 20 years ago. Today, you know, you can just go somewhere and do it. But I think we're still going to want to see hand-to-hand combat with people debating and going at it versus just debating a machine. Right. And the question is, will you be able to know what you're seeing? So uh, I, I used to tell students that you are here in this classroom to enhance the capacity of your mind. You are not here to learn things, right? Things are now freely available on the Internet. You don't need to go to school yeah. to access them. What you need to do here is practice how well your mind functions. And so, yeah, you know, today um, I would uh, I would beat the pants off chat GPT because I wouldn't let it come down to volumes of information. On a volumes of information question, then, you know, if chat GPT 3 can't do it, chat GPT 4 will. Um, but at the level of the ability to... Um, reason, and I'm not arguing that there's no ability because we've actually seen it, right? The fact that this thing can write code and fix code Crazy, yeah. is incredible. Yeah. And that is a kind of thinking, even if it's not doing it in a way that we recognize as, as a valid cognition. But, um, but we do have to worry about what the future is going to look like. And, you know, I, I already don't think that we know exactly what we see when somebody's giving a, you know, especially somebody very powerful is giving a speech on television. Um, but we, uh, we're going to be in a world of confusion once you um, plug this thing into our mechanisms for sense making. Yeah, it's going to be, all I know is it's going to be interesting to see what happens <laughs> next. This thing is not going to be slowing down, by the way. It keeps getting smarter and smarter. Yeah. Let's talk about COVID, okay? We had Neil deGrasse Tyson here. Did you watch the clip where it was specifically the COVID clip, him and I uh, talking about it, and he was giving his point of view. When you heard him, okay, I'm sure you were saying to yourself, Patrick, say this. 
you know, he needs to know this and what about this and what about that. What was your take when you heard uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, give his views on the vaccine? Um, I, I had a number of <clears throat> responses. First, let's give him his due, though. He was way out of his depth, but the point, his underlying point isn't incorrect. It's just not applicable. So his underlying point was that there is a game-theoretic problem that surrounds issues of public health and that we are in a position to do ourselves great harm if we don't recognize that issue and address it. And to give you a, a trivial example that everyone will agree on, the fact is that washing your hands after you use the toilet is not about protecting yourself. It's about protecting other people. And we formally and informally enforce a rule where people have to wash their hands because the benefit to all of us of having people who prepare our food, for example, wash their hands or anybody who's going to touch a doorknob um, is so great compared to the cost that we each pay for washing our own hands that it's a, it's a slam dunk winner. Right? So that kind of game theory exists potentially in the space of things like vaccination. And I will just I'll describe it this way. If you had a good vaccine, one that really provided sterilizing immunity to a serious disease, then, uh, and it had some risk, right? There's, a, there's a, what we call a free rider problem which is if you imagine that you start vaccinating people for this disease and that the benefit comes from having more and more people vaccinated so the disease can't find vulnerable individuals to use as vectors, then the closer you get to vaccinating everybody, the less value there is in vaccinating the next person because you've already got a population that has herd immunity. So if you want to not experience, not face your share of the risk of that program, then you don't get vaccinated and everybody else is taking the risk on your behalf gives you the benefit too. So the free rider comes out ahead because they get the benefit of the vaccination program and they don't pay the cost of it, right? That's a real problem in the context of a, an actually good vaccine that carries some risk with it and what it will do is it may drive the number or the fraction of the population that gets the vaccine down to a point where we don't have herd immunity and the disease continues to circulate, right? So that's the problem that he wants to solve. The, the, the issue comes that we have a completely polluted set of information available to the public about the nature of the so-called vaccines that were deployed for COVID, about the effectiveness of those vaccines, that's those so-called vaccines, at preventing disease, serious or otherwise, um, and the safety of those inoculations. So what you heard in your exchange with him was a guy who effectively believed the public health apparatus in what it told him and couldn't imagine how anybody would reach a different conclusion. Now, many of us, including me, did reach a different conclusion. And, you know, for all of us, it started somewhere. For, for Heather and me, it started when we were hearing about these so-called vaccines for the first time. 
And we were told, like everybody else, that these things were highly effective against COVID and safe. And when we heard the claim that they were safe, we knew something was wrong because there is no conceivable way, there is literally no way they could be safe, right? They could have been harmless. They didn't turn out to be harmless, but they could have been harmless. But safe implies that you know at the point that claim is made that they are harmless, that they don't have any long-term impacts that are worth knowing about. And they hadn't been around long enough. There was no prior example of such a inoculation used in another creature that would have allowed us to determine that. So if these people were telling the truth, what they would have said was, well, I don't want to say because I think we now know that this wasn't the truth even then, but if they had said, we don't know of any harms and we don't believe they are likely, but we cannot promise you they don't exist, right? Then it would have been a very different story. But at the point they said, oh, these things are safe, the point is, ah, that's a lie. I don't know why it's a lie. I don't know if they're solving a game theory problem and they actually believe that, or they're solving a business problem and I'm the mark. I don't know. But I do know something's wrong with the claim. And at the point that we realized something was wrong with that claim, we started to dig. The further we dug, the worse it got. And, you know, that sort of led us to a second line of inquiry, which was, well, what is the likelihood that a inoculation based on this technology would be safe? And the answer was very, very low. And the reason I say that is because the technology in question, especially the mRNA uh, inoculation or transfectant, um, was so radically different from anything that had been successfully deployed before that the chances it was going to have some impact on the immune system, on the circulatory system, on neurological systems, the likelihood that there was going to be something in there that it disrupted was extremely high because complex systems are that way. There are so many interrelated parts that there's no way to predict what the impacts will be and the likelihood of improving a functional organism with such a thing is low. So I have two questions for you. Sure. One, did you watch uh, uh, the Pfizer CEO at the... Uh Davos being chased down and asked and all the questions and they didn't have a response from did you see that by the way that clip is not on YouTube so we're not going to be playing it it can be on Twitter you can go find it we'll put a link for it if people want to see it but it's a very interesting uh, uh, back and forth for two or three minutes and the guy walked for a long time the question I got for you is the part and this is where a lot of people message me the interview got nearly 100,000 comments is what it got not in a span of six years in a span of two weeks it got 100,000 comments first Six hours, it already had 40,000 comments. Neil deGrasse. Yeah, there's a part where he says there's a public health contract that you have signed implicitly as a citizen of a country where in part we depend on each other for health, our wealth, our security, and the like. And that contract is in the best scientific evidence available at the time. If you do not get vaccinated, you will put other people in this organization at risk. And that organization does not want to take that risk. So you do not have this job anymore if you decline it. So in, in with any public health decision, there has to be a consequence to you not participating in this social contract. Which social contract is he talking about? Public health contract is he talking about? Well, this is exactly what I was getting at when I, I said we should give him his due. In principle, he's not wrong. 
The problem is that the person or the entity into which you have entered this contract, without your choice, by the way, but which you have been forced to enter this contract, is in breach of that exact contract, right? That is why this is a non-question. That is why there is exactly no right to mandate these things, is because in order to have any legitimacy to such a policy, you would have to take every precaution to protect the public from the perverse incentives inside of science, inside of pharma, inside of public health, and no precautions were taken. In fact, what appears to have happened is the complete capture of the system that should be protecting us. So in the case that you had a truly dangerous disease, you had, let's say that we had a uh, a, a true vaccine, something based on a reliable technology, something like an attenuated virus-based vaccine in which proper testing had been done by an independent authority which had evaluated the level of adverse events to be low, had looked at past examples of similar vaccines and said the likelihood that there is something hiding here that we don't know is low. Here are the uh, all-cause mortality statistics on previous vaccines that have been out for many decades, right? Then there would have been at least the basis for a discussion about a mandate. But we are so far from having a structure that is capable of managing that responsibility that it is inconceivable that those mandates would have been justified. And of course, the fact that they did not instantly get removed at the point we discovered these things did not block transmission of the disease tells you this wasn't about public health in the first place. This was about something else. I don't know that we know what that something else was, but it wasn't good. It wasn't about us in the public. It was about something. Perhaps it was business. That's the best case scenario is that this was greed driving this, but it certainly wasn't keeping people safe. Money. <clears throat> uh, that's the floor. The explanation could be worse, but at, at least this was runaway greed and a complete indifference to the suffering and death of other people's children. Can I just ask a simple question? This, this is not my wheelhouse. Um, this is, I, I would like the audience to maybe get some, some very specific, clear answers. Uh, every country had a sort of a different approach. Every state in America had a different approach. We saw what happened in California, lockdowns, New York versus Florida, DeSantis, all that. If you could uh, give a grade to America's response as a country, and then what countries out there would you give an A to in the response to everything that happened in 2020? I don't think an A was possible. There, you know, if, you know, if we're grading on a curve, you know... Sweden did better. He likes better. the old educational system. Yeah. Well, he wants to know whether he got an A or B. <laughs> right. Planet Earth got an F minus on this one. Okay. And, you know, Planet Earth got an F minus. That's not even harsh enough. Wow. Like, let, let's just be clear about this. No matter what ended up being true about these so-called vaccines, about early treatment, about the proliferation of variants that comes from the vaccination campaign, no matter what we conclude on all of those topics. At the very least, we have a virus that appears to have been the product of a circumvention of a law that was um, created by Congress to protect us from gain-of-function research that resulted in Anthony Fauci using a proxy to offshore that work 
to the lab in Wuhan, China, where they appear to have enhanced this virus's capacity to infect human beings. Every single bad thing that happened to us, including the trillions of dollars of wealth that got evaporated, all of the people who have been killed by the virus or some consequence of lockdowns or some consequence of these inoculants, right? All of those costs come from that error. So, you know, this is a self-inflicted wound from one end to the other. This is the greatest blunder in human history. And for the same people who were responsible for that blunder to have been put in charge of protecting us when they clearly had perverse incentives was insane. Any country to get an A on this exam would have had to call that out and say, actually, this can't be managed by the same people who created it. We need to find the best minds, the most independent minds, and we need to start with a fresh sheet of paper that doesn't involve those people and figure out what the right thing to do is. And if we had done that, even after the virus had gotten loose and spread around the globe, we would have done vastly better. Would there have been deaths? Yes, many. But we would have done vastly better. So the fact that at best provinces ignored the global response and did their own thing and saved their own populations, right? Uttar Pradesh used ivermectin, right? Do we know what the consequence of that was? Not exactly. But we don't know because there is a, an obsession with not finding out, much as there is an obsession with not finding out what adverse events are actually happening at what rate, right, from the uh, mRNA vaccines. So we simply have to escape the people who have control over what questions we are allowed to ask, what we are allowed to study, and we need to figure out what happened so that this can never happen again. So, so let, me, let me ask you this question. This is my challenge, and this is kind of where I was going with it. Uh, what things are the left certain about and what things are the right certain about? What things are liberals certain about? What things are conservatives certain about? That they're not correct? No, no. Either way, look, listen. Here's the Republicans are wrong. The Democrats are wrong on this. 100% they're wrong on this. Or we, the Democrats, are right on this. We, the Republicans, are right on this. What things on both sides are they certain they're right or wrong? Do you know what I'm asking? Not exactly. Okay, so I'm, for example, I'll give yeah. you an idea. Uh, 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 we make the right, the right thing to do is to get the vaccine. Or else, you know... The, the world's going to die. The right thing to do is climate change. We have to make that a priority because in 12 years, we may cease to exist. You know, the right thing to do is we are 100% right. Climate change is real. You know, what things would you say the, the left is 100% certain they're right and the other side is wrong and then vice versa? Well, I mean, I think this is just a different a different puzzle than the one you're asking about. We have teams, right? We have a blue team and a red team. Yes. These things amount to jerseys. And the fact is you have good soldiers on both sides, right, who wear the jersey and believe all of the stuff that the other people who wear that same jersey and go to the same parties believe. Right. And so it's just like a, a really insane slate of things that have been incoherently uh, put together, right? And it's really the hallmark of low-quality thinking that 
people sign up for the full slate, right? It would be normal if you, you know, the people that you were aligned with politically had a set of beliefs and you thought, well, I'm with them on this, this, and this. I'm halfway there on this one and I disagree with them on these two, right? Mm -hmm. That would be normal. But the idea that, oh yeah, you know, the New York Times, uh, it speaks for me. Wow, you got to be some amazing level of confused if you think <laughs> I got a story for you. I'm going to show here in a minute. Not right now, but keep going. Well, and it has it's, it's to give credit to New York Times. Maybe it's not credit, but you'll see here in a minute. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing about that. <laughs> it's been some time since the New York Times deserved any credit. Well, you'll see what it is here in a second. Um, but anyway, so you know, we could go through those um, you know slates of disagreements on both sides, and the problem is that. All of these things require adult-level nuance that isn't found in either of these, you know, simple sets of prescriptions. So let me maybe set up why I'm asking the question, okay? For me, uh, I come from the school of thought of, man, we don't know. It's a test. We're testing. And we could be wrong. Meaning, Sweden took a test, took a risk. Hey, worked out for them. DeSantis took a risk. Could have worked out against him. Sure. Worked against him. But it worked in his benefit. Cuomo took a risk. Got him fired. Maybe for other reasons, but he got fired. Newsom took a risk. Not a good look for California. You know, Illinois took a risk. Texas took a risk. South Dakota took a risk. A lot of people took a risk. Every leader took a risk. The, the, the risk uh, uh, to me that uh, – uh, was annoying was when people were 100% right, that they are 100% right, rather than saying, look, this is the strategy we're using to beat the enemy. None of us know 100% whether we're going to be right or wrong. Nobody knows 100%. But this is the choices that we have. Our encouragement is if you're afraid, you have an option, go take the vaccine. But, you know, we feel confident about the amount of research that we've gotten so far. Obviously, if we had five or ten years, we would be more certain because we've, we've done more testing. But if you're still comfortable taking it, in the military, they came up to us. Remember back in the days, anthrax shot? Ooh. So they came in the Army. This is how it was for the Army, by the way, just so you know. Now it's starting to make sense because I'm going back and realizing when my, you know, kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> they came and they said, uh, you guys are taking an anthrax shot. We're like, what are you talking about? Well, your government property. And so the sergeants are talking to us, and Sergeant Braxton, are these guys telling the truth? You signed that contract, man. In that situation, you did sign a contract. You are government property. You are theirs for eight years, right? So guess what shot we had to take? We had to take the shot. Now we would say, so how much do we know about what's going on? Not, you know, typically first line of defense, first testing goes through military, and you're a part of it, right? Damn. Do you know how many people took it? We're like, dude, is, am I going to grow, you know, fourth arm? Am I going to be a two-headed Assyrian? You know, what's, <laughs> what's going to happen here, right? But people were scared, and a lot of debate was going on. But they told you, this could cause a lot of side effects. You have to sign this waiver that the military can never be held liable for X, Y, Z. And we had already signed it anyway, so we didn't have a choice. But at least it's to say, this comes with side effects. You take the medication, what does the medication say? You know, they made uh, Philip Morris put what on the cig cigarettes? This could cause cancer, bro. If you want to smoke it, smoke, but you could die from cancer. Guess what? I'm okay with that because you're telling me what my risks are. My concern was they were too confident that their way was 100% the right way and the opposition had no opportunity to question them. That was my 
biggest chance. So when I'm asking a question about, you know, which side thinks they're more certain in different areas, the left was very, very certain their way was the right way or, you know, hit the road if you can take a different approach. Well, uh, two responses. One, uh, I noticed as my kids were growing up that I would ask them what they thought was going on in some case, and they would tell me, and I would say, how certain are you? And they would say 100%, and I would say, wrong. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I started to um, force them to put a number on I the likelihood that. that they were oh, incorrect. Oh, you I would get along. And it could be a very tiny yep. number, right? But the yep. point is you need to have... There you what, go. Right. It can be a fraction of 1%, but it can't be zero, right? Um, and I would also say that in the context of COVID and, and most significantly the vaccination campaign, there was a nightmare scenario for Heather and me. And unfortunately, we had to root for it, right? This was torture because on the one hand, we were confident that we could not be confident of the safety of these things. Nobody could. There was no way you could have certainty about their safety because they had not been around long enough to know what their consequence would be a year down the road or two years down the road. And that's a reasonable level of skepticism. It was should have been uncontroversial. But the problem is what could have happened is we could have said, hey, whoa, whoa wait a minute. These things can't be safe. That has to be a lie because nobody knows what happens three years down the road. And there could have been no consequences, which would have been the best outcome by far, right? And it would have ruined our credibility because most people don't understand that to say that is not safe is different than saying that does harm, right? So we left the door open to any possibility and just said, look, the, the only thing to be certain of is that we can't be certain of something like safety in this case. And so we had to root for our own destruction, we had to root that the vaccines would be harmless. And um, it was a very uncomfortable spot to be in because, you know, on the one hand, you want them to be harmless, of course. And on the other hand, I don't know what we do for a living after that, right? So um, that's the predicament of adult-level nuance, right? It's not a safe business. And um, how confident are you that... Uh now that McCarthy and, you know, some of the guys pushed, uh, they went 15 rounds until he finally was announced, you know, Speaker of the House, because there was a lot of deals being made where they're going to go investigate Fauci and, you know, all of the vaccine stuff. How confident are you that Rand Paul and his camp, they're going to get to the bottom of this? And we're going to find out exactly how this thing got out, how much, you know, like just the same thing that we learn about Twitter files. Are we going to learn new things about it, controversy about it? Are we eventually going to get to the truth? Uh, I doubt it. Really? I don't. I think we will get to more truth than we've got. But the system has a way of protecting itself. And what it's going to do is reveal no more than it has to. And so from our perspective in the public, if we don't want this to happen to us again, we have to push so that the amount that it has to cough up is a greater fraction of the whole. But no, I... I uh, I strongly doubt we will fully get to the bottom of what happened here. Quick point about this this 100% level of certainty in general. Like We've all been around those people. It's like, how confident you are? You 100%, bro. I'm telling you, it's 100%. You know how like in polling, we've seen the pollsters get it wrong for 
decades now. Why can't they implement this margin of error? It's usually what three percent, give or take. Why can't we? I got too many. Take that and put that into people's opinions, or even something as as essential as COVID or anything like this. It's like, all right, you can no longer say a hundred percent. Sick question. We got two minutes. So this is what I want to do before going there. Mm-hmm. Can you pull up? We have to give a shout out to New York Times, our sponsors, <laughs> uh, especially after this article you read. I'm sure you guys are going to be buying their magazine. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced you're going to be subscribing to them and reading every article of theirs. This, uh, when I read this, I'm like, what? Like the level of stuff they write. I mean, you think this is a joke. Okay, here's New York Times. There has never been a better time to be short. Okay. So this article goes down, keep going down, and it says how it is bad. Get something I'm From where I stand at five feet seven, uh, being tall is widely held fantasy superior in Arizona. It made sense to fawn over height when facility ages ago when necessary is defending yourself. If you go all the way to the bottom and read this article, you know what it's really saying? How tall people should stop having kids, okay? How shorter people are better for society, why we should go back to being shorter, not being taller. Why it's not fair. I mean, the average person who has logic who reads this says, who even approved this opinion to be written with the brand New York Times? Unless if you're just trying to get a lot of eyeballs for people to talk about it. Okay, What, what do you see with the level of credibility New York Times has today? I know well, you're a big fan of this. I know you're like <laughs> a big spokesperson for them going around always trying to get people to subscribe. I mean, I, I, I'm just I'm endlessly shocked and disappointed by the New York Times and, you know, and the Washington Post, too, and really all of the mainstream media. But the question is why? Is this you know, Project Mockingbird just simply one? Or is this the breakdown in competence, having produced a, a newspaper that you know, wouldn't know news if it hit it in the face? It, it's or would you secretly fantasize about owning them? The New York Times? Yeah. I, I never fantasize about owning the New York Times. No, you wouldn't want to be like the editor-in-chief or... I think they've done too much damage to the brand for it to be anything other than funny. But am, what's am I, your level of certainty, though? 100%? 97%? Where are you at on this? Uh, uh, <laughs> that it would be good to own the New York Times? I'm at 3%. Okay, leave <laughs> a margin of error. Yes. That's a callback to my point. There uh, you go. I like it. Okay, by the way, I wish we had more time. Truly enjoyed it. I just looked at it, I'm like, oh, shoot, I need another two hours with this guy. I really enjoyed being I'm, – I'm looking forward to bringing you back, and hopefully next time – Rob, next time we do it, let's do it at a time that's not on a Dream Team call so we can go more than two hours because two hours with Brett is not enough time. We're just getting started. But uh, uh, for folks who enjoy today's podcast and you'd like to find more information on Brett, Brett has a podcast called The Dark Horse, if I'm saying it correctly. Dark Horse Podcast. Dark Horse Podcast. You can find it all over the place. What's the main place you'd like us to push it to if you were to go to one spot? Spotify. Spotify. Let's put the Spotify link to the podcast so people can go uh, find it. Brett, appreciate you for coming out. This was great. Cannot wait to do it again. Thanks. Me too. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye.